Welcome back to the second episode of the Neural Compass podcast. For anyone new, I'm a neuroscience major at the University of Chicago, and the goal of this podcast is neuroscientific and psychological education to benefit your daily life. I want to start off by thanking everyone who watched the first episode, and especially to those who sent kind words. A disclaimer you'll be hearing a lot of is that I am just a student, and nothing I discuss is to be considered medical advice. Today's episode is about love and loneliness, both derivative of the idea that humans are social creatures. I've chosen to begin by talking about loneliness first and transitioning to love, from a proposed negative to a hopeful positive. Loneliness is often misattributed to the environment, but loneliness is much more than simple social isolation. The research of John Cacioppo from the University of Chicago defines loneliness as an aversive state, much like hunger or pain, which encourages action. With hunger, it is to eat. With pain, it is to flee. And with loneliness, it is to seek connection. A 2015 study published in Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience, authored by Tristan Inagaki, showed functional MRI results associating lonely people with increased activity in the ventral striatum of the brain, which is a reward center that has been linked with increased activity when hungry. In 2000, John Cacioppo published more findings that loneliness undermines the health of individuals, altering cardiac function, disrupting sleep, and being a risk factor for obesity, even impairing prefrontal cortex function, which is the decision-making center of the brain. More interesting than these negative effects of loneliness to me was the finding that across students scoring in different quintiles, or basically just scoring ranges on their loneliness test, their level of social interaction, engagement, and overall activity was the same. Kashiopo found that being alone isn't just what makes people lonely. It's also not a personality trait like shyness. Their study concluded that loneliness stems from three attributes, isolation, feelings of disconnection, and feelings of not belonging. And loneliness can result from the presence of one, two, or three of these attributes. Now, definitions are great and all, but I'm sure many of you are wondering, if I feel lonely, how can I fix it? Many people try to beat loneliness, and but fail because they approach it in the wrong way. Our first reaction when feeling lonely or hearing a friend is lonely is to throw them into a social situation, say, go to a party or a concert. But these fail to address the feelings of disconnection and the feelings of not belonging. Just like how not all food can sustain someone who's starving. In fact, the failure might spiral into even more loneliness because psychologically, expectation drives behavior. The best way to fight the epidemic of loneliness is to establish as deep as social connections as possible. Even developing just one person you can confide in is tremendously helpful. A way to develop a sense of belonging is to join something beyond yourself. 
volunteering, a job, a pet, anything that gives you a role and a purpose. Most importantly, we are social creatures. We need people. So next time you feel alone and lonely, respond like you're hungry and eat. And don't wait. That being said, it would be neglectful of me not to mention the context of the crazy world affairs we are living in. Just the term social distancing seems to defeat everything I just mentioned. And while it does make things more difficult, loneliness is not a requirement of this pandemic. As I have said, crowds aren't the cure anyway. Grab a mask, stay six feet apart, and try calling instead of the usual text. I'm working on that last one myself. Another societal implication of loneliness is that I have now informed you of some of the negative effects of loneliness. Decreased prefrontal cortex activity, permanent damage, social inability, negatively affected sleep. Solitarywatch.org reports that as many as 80 to 100,000 inmates are currently in solitary confinement in the United States, each often for years at a time. Now, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but it's definitely something we should be cognizant of, especially if you are in this realm or plan to be in this realm of social thought. Harry Harlow in 1958 sought to study mechanisms of attachment and parental connection and rhesus monkeys. From these studies, relevant to this episode are the results he found when he reared monkeys in total isolation and when he reared monkeys with two available pseudo-mothers. First, the monkeys Harlow raised in total isolation without a mother immediately exhibited strange behaviors such as consistent clutching of themselves and ferocious rocking, and went on to be incapable of functioning around other monkeys. The worst of this is that when stressed, these monkeys would react by beginning to elicit self-mutilative behavior. While none of this is directly corollary to humans, it provides strong evidence and backing to the idea that humans need social interaction and more so need what most people would consider love. The other group of monkeys of interest were those raised with two pseudo-mothers. One of them contained a bottle, but was made of uncomfortable wire, while the other was made of soft cloth, but lacked any sustenance to provide. Interestingly, albeit somewhat intuitively to most people, the monkeys would spend as little time as possible with the wire mother just to feed, and would clutch the cloth mother constantly, despite it having no sustenance to provide. This supports the idea that there seems to be something to attachment beyond simple resources, leaving space for love. This also gives hope for all the pet owners out there. Maybe your animals do really love you, not just for the food you provide. Interestingly, it's difficult for neuroscientists to study love because of definitional ambiguity, human complexity, and the ethical limitations of human study, which can be frustrating, but fascinating because more is being learned as we speak. Because of these difficulties, in order to study love, neuroscientists sought out an animal model. But what animals love? Larry Young of Emory University here defined love 
as a long-term attachment to a single partner and found their perfect candidate in the feisty, furry little animal native to the Midwestern United States known as the prairie vole. Prairie voles were identified and chosen because they form monogamous pair bonds. Both parents care for the young, and the family units are nearly inseparable. The word vole is an anagram for love, after all. Now, whether or not you believe this is the correct model for love, or your definition thereof, at the very least, it is a model for a monogamous partnership and a long-term coupling. What Larry Young found was interesting interactions surrounding, surrounding two neurochemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin, both tied to reward centers and attachment. Interestingly, these chemicals interact differently based on the sex of the vole. Females develop attachment from oxytocin, released during mating, while males develop attachment from vasopressin release. In males, Vasopressin functions similarly, similarly to oxytocin. However, the receptor locations are different. The reason why oxytocin has limited effect in male voles is because testosterone was found to inhibit the effect of oxytocin. This difference can be extrapolated to explain that men and women could fall into love differently. Excitingly, more research is needed and I'd also like to note that this isn't limited to simply biological males or females, because with hormone treatment, these exact chemicals can have altered effects. So what does this mean for you? I can't tell you that a woman or a man will settle down for you if you do this certain thing, but be aware, there could be differences in the time it takes or the activities that promote connection between you and your partner. Human love is much more complex than vol love. But the best piece of advice a single 19-year-old neuroscience major can give you from everything I've learned is just to be communicative and confident. Psychologist Robert Sternberg developed an acclaimed system for describing love in the 80s using a three-tiered model involving lust, commitment, and attachment. The chemicals I discussed with the voles mostly govern attachment, while estrogen and testosterone typically govern lust. Commitment is complex and tied to a number of neurotransmitters, so I won't bog you down the discussion with it. But what makes human relationships successful is a combination of all three. Ideally, in that combination is what's called consummate love. Interestingly though, Sternberg made sure that everybody knew that these stages are transient, and achieving consummate love is often short-lived. This supports the idea that relationships and love require significant effort. Get the rom-com ideology out of your head. You will not find an effortless love that fulfills you constantly. You will, however, find an intentional love forged by attraction, proximity, and commitment. I want to also briefly explain what a toxic relationship is and why it's so difficult for people to get out of. In a very zoomed out view, the human mind's goal is to develop certainty from uncertainty. Imagine a primitive scenario. 
Now, humans aren't the fastest or strongest animals, but primitive hunters would catch their prey through outlasting them. Bipedal movement is slower, yet less energy-intensive than quadrupedal movement, meaning these early hunters would simply chase after and outlast their prey. But if they were unable to ignore the uncertainty of being attacked by their predators, or their family being attacked, or the weather changing, they would be unsuccessful. Bringing that to today, there are a myriad of uncertainties at every moment, and we would be paralyzed to act if our brains couldn't find certainty and accept. How that relates to toxic relationships is that sometimes even when we perceive a relationship as negative or harmful, certain people still choose the consistent, certain toxicity rather than risking the uncertainty of someone new, the uncertainty of someone you think is good turning evil. Another reason is chemical. When you are with someone whose behavior is so volatile, not knowing whether they want to hurt you or love you, you're in a stressed state. There is a release of adrenaline, which is a stress hormone, that can make things seem more exciting. Now, if any of this resonates with you or your current relationship, I am another voice telling you to have the self-assurance to leave. You don't need somebody else to determine your worth. And maybe the understanding that this attraction has both a chemical and evolutionary foundation will help you come to terms with it. The idea of love captures and envelops us, driving us recklessly towards it. In literature, love is a very complex theme that has the power to drive great altruism and sacrifice, as well as pain and madness. As I hope to make a tradition, I want to end this episode with a relevant poem, this time by W.S. Merwin, called blueberries after dark. So this is the way the night tastes, one at a time, not early or late. My mother told me that I was not afraid of the dark, and when I looked, it was true. How did she know so long ago, with her father dead, almost before she could remember, and her mother following him not long after? And then her grandmother, who had brought her up, and a little later, her only brother, and then her firstborn, gone as soon as he was born, she knew. I like to imagine the blueberries as lovers, sweet and one at a time, nestled amidst the lonely darkness, as well as the guidance of parental, unconditional love. And that's the end of the second episode of the Neural Compass podcast. Thank you so much for listening. After the first episode, I had a few people reach out to me, so I wanted to include a special thank you to those people for continuing to motivate me. If you want to be involved in what I talk about or have your questions answered, reach out to me and follow my socials. That's Neural Compass Podcast on Instagram or now at Neural underscore Compass on Twitter.